The French Revolution, A History, by Thomas Carlyle, Volume 1. Book 3, The Parliament of Paris. Chapter 3, The Notables. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Book 3, Chapter 3, The Notables. Here, then, is verily a sign and wonder, visible to the whole world, bodeful of much. The oie de boeuf dolorously grumbles. Were we not well as we stood, quenching conflagrations by oil? Constitutional philosophedom starts with joyful surprise, stares eagerly what the result will be. The public creditor, the public debtor, the whole thinking and thoughtless public have their several surprises, joyful and sorrowful. Count Mirabeau, who has got his matrimonial and other lawsuits huddled up, better or worse, and works now in the dimmest element at Berlin, compiling Prussian monarchies, pamphlets on Cagliostro, writing with pay, but not with honourable recognition, innumerable dispatches for his government, scents, or decries, richer quarry from afar. He, like an eagle or vulture, or mixture of both, preens his wings for flight homewards. Monsieur de Calonne has stretched out an Aaron's rod over France, miraculous, and is summoning quite unexpected things. Audacity and hope alternate in him with misgivings, though the sanguine valiant side carries it. Anon, he writes to an intimate friend, Je me fais pitié et moi-même. I am an object of pity to myself. Anon invites some dedicating poet or poetaster to sing this assembly of the notables and the revolution that is preparing. Preparing, indeed, and a matter to be sung, only not till we have seen it and what the issue of it is. In deep, obscure unrest, all things have so long gone rocking and swaying. Will Monsieur de Cologne, with this his alchemy of the notables, fasten all together again and get new revenues? or wrench all asunder, so that it go no longer rocking and swaying, but clashing and colliding. Be this as it may, in the bleak short days we behold men of weight and influence threading the great vortex of French locomotion, each on his several line, from all sides of France towards the chateau of Versailles, summoned thither de par le roi. There, on the twenty-second day of February, 1787, they have met and got installed, notables to the number of a hundred and thirty-seven, as we count them name by name. Add seven princes of the blood, it makes the round gross of notables. Men of the sword, men of the robe, peers, dignified clergy, parliamentary presidents, divided into seven boards, bureau, under our seven princes of the blood, Monsieur, Datois, Pontievre, and the rest, amongst whom let not our new Duke d'Orléans, for since 1785 he is Chartres no longer, be forgotten. Never yet made admiral, and now turning the corner of his fortieth year, with spoiled blood and prospects, half weary of a world which is more than half weary of him, Monseigneur's future is most questionable not in illumination and insight, not even in conflagration, but, as was said, in dull smoke and ashes of outburnt sensualities, does he live and digest. Sumptuosity and sordidness, revenge, 
life weariness, ambition, darkness, putrescence, and say in sterling money three hundred thousand a year, were this poor prince once to burst loose from his court moorings, to what regions, with what phenomena, might he not sail and drift? Happily as yet, he affects to hunt daily, sits there since he must sit, presiding that bureau of his with dull moon visage, dull glassy eyes, as if it were a mere tedium to him. We observe, finally, that Count Mirabeau has actually arrived. He descends from Berlin on the scene of action, glares into it with a flashing sun glance, discerns that it will do nothing for him. He had hoped these notables might need a secretary. They do need one, but have fixed on Dupont de Namur, a man of smaller fame, but then of better, who indeed, as his friends often hear, labours under this complaint, surely not a universal one, of having five kings to correspond with. The pen of a Mirabeau cannot become an official one. Nevertheless, it remains a pen. In defect of secretaryship, he sets to denouncing stock brokerage, denunciation de l'agiotage, testifying as his wont is by loud bruit that he is present and busy, till, warned by friend Talleyrand, and even by Cologne himself underhand, that a seventeenth letter de cachet may be launched against him, he timefully flits over the marches. And now, in stately royal apartments, as pictures of that time still represent them, a hundred and forty-four notables sit organised, ready to hear and consider. Controller Cologne is dreadfully behindhand with his speeches, his preparatives. However, the man's facility of work is known to us. For freshness of style, lucidity, ingenuity, largeness of view, that opening harangue of his was unsurpassable had not the subject matter been so appalling. A deficit concerning which accounts vary, and the controller's own account is not unquestioned, but which all accounts agree in representing as enormous. This is the epitome of our controller's difficulties. And then his means? Mere turgotism. For thither, it seems, we must come at last. Provincial assemblies, new taxation, nay, strangest of all, new land tax, what he calls subvention territoriale, from which neither privileged nor unprivileged noblemen, clergy nor parliamentiers shall be exempt. Foolish enough! These privileged classes have been used to tax, levying toll, tribute and custom at all hands while a penny was left, but to be themselves taxed? Of such privileged persons, meanwhile, do these notables, all but the merest fraction, consist. Headlong Cologne had given no heed to the composition or judicious packing of them, but chosen such notables as were really notable, trusting for the issue to an off-hand ingenuity, good fortune and eloquence that never yet failed. Headlong Controller-General. Eloquence can do much, but not all. Orpheus, with eloquence grown rhythmic, musical, what we call poetry, drew iron tears from the cheek of Pluto. But by what witchery of rhyme or prose wilt thou from the pocket of Plutus draw gold? 
Accordingly, the storm that now rose and began to whistle round Calan, first in these seven bureaus, and then on the outside of them, awakened by them, spreading wider and wider over all France, threatens to become unappeasable. A deficit so enormous? Mismanagement, profusion is too clear. Peculation itself is hinted at. Nay, Lafayette and others go so far as to speak it out with attempts at proof. The blame of his deficit, our brave Cologne, as was natural, had endeavoured to shift from himself on his predecessors, not excepting even Necker. But now Necker vehemently denies, whereupon an angry correspondence, which also finds its way into print. In the Oie de Boeuf and Her Majesty's private apartments, an eloquent controller with his Madame, if it is but difficult, had been persuasive. But alas, the cause is now carried elsewhither. Behold him, one of these sad days, in Monsieur's bureau, to which all the other bureaus have sent deputies. He is standing at bay, alone, exposed to an incessant fire of questions, interpolations, objurgations from those 137 pieces of logic ordnance, what we may well call bouche à feu, firemouths, literally. Never, according to Bessonval, or hardly ever, had such display of intellect, dexterity, coolness, suasive eloquence been made by man. To the raging play of so many fire-mouths, he opposes nothing angrier than light-beams, self-possession and fatherly smiles. With the imperturbalist bland clearness, he for five hours long keeps answering the incessant volley of fiery, captious questions, reproachful interpolations, in words prompt as lightning, quiet as light. Nay, the crossfire, too, such side questions and incidental interpolations as, in the heat of the main battle, he, having only one tongue, could not get answered, these also he takes up at the first slake, answers even these. Could blandest, suasive eloquence have saved France, she was saved. Heavy-laden controller, in the seven bureaus seems nothing but hindrance. In Monsieur's bureau, a Lomini de Brienne, Archbishop of Toulouse, with an eye himself to the controllership, stirs up the clergy. There are meetings, underground intrigues. Neither from without anywhere comes sign of help or hope. For the nation, where Mirabeau is now with stentor lungs denouncing agio, the controller has hitherto done nothing or less. For philosophedom, he has done as good as nothing, sent out some scientific La Perouse or the like, and he see not in angry correspondence with its necker? The very oi de boeuf looks questionable. A falling controller has no friends. Solid Monsieur de Vergennes, who with his phlegmatic judicious punctuality might have kept down many things, died the very week before these sorrowful notables met. And now a seal-keeper, garde de Sceaux Miromenil, is thought to be playing the traitor, spinning plots for Lomini Brienne. Queen's reader, Abbe de Vermont, unloved individual, was Brienne's creature, the work of his hands from the first. It may be feared the backstairs passage is open, ground getting mined under our feet. Treacherous garde de Sceaux Miromenil at least should be dismissed, La Mognon, the eloquent notable, a stanch man with connections and even ideas, Parliament President, yet intent on reforming Parliament, were not he the right keeper? 
So, for one, thinks busy Bessonville, and at dinner table rounds the same into the controller's ear, who always, in the intervals of landlord duties, listens to him as with charmed look, but answers nothing positive. Alas, what to answer? The force of private intrigue, and then also the force of public opinion, grows so dangerous, confused. Philosophedom sneers aloud, as if its necker already triumphed. The gaping populace gapes over woodcuts or coppercuts, where, for example, a rustic is represented convoking the poultry in his barnyard with this opening address. Dear animals, I have assembled you to advise me what sauce I shall dress you with. To which a cock, responding, We don't want to be eaten, is checked by, You wander from the point. Vous vous écartez de la question. Laughter and logic, ballad singer, pamphleteer, epigram and caricature. What wind of public opinion is this, as if the cave of the winds were bursting loose? At nightfall, President Lamogno steals over to the controller, finds him walking with large strides in his chamber like one out of himself. With rapid, confused speech, the controller begs Monsieur de Lamoignon to give him an advice. Lamoignon candidly answers that except in regard to his own anticipated keepership, unless that would prove remedial, he really cannot take upon him to advise. On the Monday after Easter, the 9th of April, 1787, a date one rejoices to verify, for nothing can excel the indolent falsehood of these histoires and memoirs, on the Monday after Easter, as I, Bessonval, was riding towards Romainville to the Maréchal de Ségur's, I met a friend on the boulevards who told me that Monsieur de Calonne was out. A little further on came Monsieur the Duc d'Orléans, dashing towards me, head to the wind, trotting à l'anglaise, and confirmed the news. It is true news. Treacherous guard de Sir Miromanil is gone, and Lamoignon is appointed in his room, but appointed for his own profit only, not for the controller's. Next day the controller also has had to move. A little longer he may linger near, be seen among the money changers, and even working in the controller's office, where much lies unfinished, but neither will that hold. Two strong blows and beats this tempest of public opinion, of private intrigue, as from the cave of all winds, and blows him, higher authority giving sign, out of Paris and France, over the horizon, into invisibility or outer darkness. Such destiny the magic of genius could not forever avert. Ungrateful Oye de Boeuf, did he not miraculously rain gold manner on you, so that, as a courtier said, all the world held out its hand, and I held out my hat for a time. Himself, his poor, penniless, had not a financier's widow in Lorraine offered him, though he was turned of fifty, her hand and the rich purse it held? Dim henceforth shall be his activity, though unwearied. Letters to the king, appeals, prognostications, pamphlets from London, written with the old suasive facility, which, however, do not persuade. Luckily, his widow's purse fails not, once in a year or two, some shadow of him shall be seen hovering on the northern border, seeking election as national deputy, but be sternly beckoned away. Dimmer then, far-borne over utmost European lands, in uncertain twilight of diplomacy, he shall hover, intriguing for exiled princes, 
and have adventures, be overset into the Rhine stream and half drowned, nevertheless save his papers dry, unwearied but in vain. In France he works miracles no more, shall hardly return thither to find a grave. Farewell, thou facile, sanguine controller-general, with thy light, rash hand, thy suasive mouth of gold. Worse men there have been, and better, but to thee also was allotted a task of raising the wind and the winds, and thou hast done it. But now, while ex-controller Cologne flies storm-driven over the horizon in this singular way, what has become of the controllership? It hangs vacant, one may say, extinct like the moon in her vacant interlunar cave. Two preliminary shadows, poor Monsieur Foucault, poor Monsieur Veuillet, poor Monsieur Villadoy, do hold in quick succession some simulacrum of it, as the new moon will sometimes shine out with a dim preliminary old one in her arms. Be patient, ye notables, an actual new controller is certain and even ready were the indispensable manoeuvres but gone through. Long-headed Lamoignon with Home Secretary Breteuil and Foreign Secretary Montmorin have exchanged looks. Let these three once meet and speak. Who is it that is strong in the Queen's favour and the Amé de Vermont? That is the man of great capacity? Or at least that has struggled these fifty years to have it thought great, now in the clergy's name, demanding to have Protestant death penalties put in execution, no flaunting it in the oil de boeuf as the gayest man-pleaser and woman-pleaser, gleaning even a good word from philosophedom and your Voltaire and d'Alembert, with a party ready-made for him and the notables, Lomany de Brienne, Archbishop of Toulouse, answer all the three with the clearest instantaneous concord and rush off to propose him to the king in such haste says bassonval that monsieur de lamoignon had to borrow a cimar seemingly some kind of cloth apparatus necessary for that Lomine Brienne, who had all his life felt a kind of predestination for the highest officers has now therefore obtained them he presides over the finances. He shall have the title of Prime Minister itself, and the effort of his long life be realised. Unhappy only that it took such talent and industry to gain the place, that to qualify for it hardly any talent or industry was left disposable. Looking now into his inner man, what qualification may he have, Lomini beholds, not without astonishment, next to nothing but vacuity and possibility? principles or methods, acquirement outward or inward, for his very body is wasted by hard tear and wear, he finds none, not so much as a plan, even an unwise one. Lucky in these circumstances that Cologne has had a plan. Cologne's plan was gathered from Turgos and Neckers by compilation, shall become Lomini's by adoption. Not in vain has Lomini studied the working of the British Constitution, for he professes to have some Anglomania of a sort. Why, in that free country, does one minister, driven out by Parliament, vanish from his king's presence, and another entered, borne in by Parliament? Surely not for mere change, which is ever wasteful, but that all men may have a share of what is going, and so the strife for freedom indefinitely prolong itself, and no harm be done. The notables, mollified by Easter festivities, by the sacrifice of Cologne, are not in the worst humour. 
Already his majesty, while the interlunar shadows were in office, had held session of notables, and from his throne delivered promisory conciliatory eloquence. The queen stood waiting at a window till his carriage came back, and monsieur from afar clapped hands to her, in sign that all was well. It has had the best effect, if such do but last. Leading notables, meanwhile, can be caressed. Brienne's new gloss, Lamoignon's long head, will profit somewhat. Conciliatory eloquence shall not be wanting. On the whole, however, it is not undeniable that this of ousting Cologne and adopting the plan of Cologne is a measure which, to produce its best effect, should be looked at from a certain distance, cursorily, not dwelt on with minute near scrutiny. In a word, that no service the notables could now do was so obliging as, in some handsome manner, to take themselves away. Their six propositions about provisional assemblies, suppression of corvées and such like, can be accepted without criticism. The subvention on land tax and much else one must glide hastily over, safe nowhere but in flourishes of conciliatory eloquence. Till at length, on this 25th of May, year 1787, in solemn final session, there burst forth what we can call an explosion of eloquence, King, Lomany, Lamoignon, and Retinue taking up the successive strain in harangues to the number of ten besides his majesty's, which last the livelong day, whereby, as in a kind of choral anthem or bravura peal of thanks, praises, promises, the notables are, so to speak, organed out and dismissed to their respective places of abode. They had sat and talked some nine weeks. They were the first notables since Richelieu's in the year 1626. By some historians sitting much at their ease in the safe distance, Lomany has been blamed for this dismissal of his notables. Nevertheless, it was clearly time. There are things, as we said, which should not be dwelt on with minute close scrutiny. Over hot coals you cannot glide too fast. In these seven bureaus, where no work could be done unless talk were work, the questionablest matters were coming up. Lafayette, for example, in Monseigneur d'Artois's bureau, took upon him to set forth more than one deprecatory oration about lettre de cachet, liberty of the subject, agio, and such like, which Monseigneur, endeavouring to repress, was answered that a notable being summoned to speak his opinion must speak it. Thus, too, his grace the Archbishop of Ay, perorating once with a plaintive pulpit tone in these words, Tithe that free-will offering of the piety of Christians. Tithe, interrupted Duke de Rochefoucauld, with the cold business manner he has learned from the English, that free-will offering of the piety of Christians, on which there are now 40,000 lawsuits in this realm, Nay, Lafayette, bound to speak his opinion, went the length one day of proposing to convoke a national assembly. "'You demand states-general?' asked Monseigneur, with an air of military surprise. "'Yes, Monseigneur, and even better than that.' "'Write it,' said Monseigneur to the clerks. "'Written accordingly it is, and what is more will be acted by and by.'" End of Book 3 Chapter 3